Okay, I, I kind of feel like we should have about a four-hour class. Um, so we're uh, on step two tonight, and uh, so step two says we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Um, this is where uh, we start to encounter this concept of God or higher power in the steps. And that, that's one aspect of uh, the steps that I think is very challenging for many people. The, in terms of the process that's going on, uh, the steps are leading us in a certain direction. And, and the, you know, the first step is uh, telling us that we are powerless, and the second step is suggesting that there is some other source of power. Uh, and I, I think to even talk about those things, because since I'm not going to talk about a God that's an external uh, magical force that intervenes in our lives, but rather something that we will experience directly within ourselves, I think we have to kind of distinguish uh, the different selves or eyes that are um, being talked about here. So as, when it says we're, we're powerless, uh, I think that we're talking about uh, uh, that part of us which is driven by compulsion and obsession, which is reactive and not uh, present, not mindful. Uh, that part of us which is uh, self-centered, ego-centered, and which does not have clarity, which is basically uh, driven by the five hindrances, driven by craving and desire, driven by resentment, anger, aversion, driven by restlessness and torpor and doubt. So when we say we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves, a power a power which is not those energies. Uh, you know, I, I continue to engage these steps and sometimes find myself trying to figure them out as I'm trying to teach them. Um, and let me talk about this step, uh, first of all, in its uh, relationship to Buddhism and how we can see something... Uh, a shared process. I talked a bit about step about the first and second noble truths last week, the truth of suffering and the truth of the cause of suffering, which is clinging, craving. The third noble truth says that it's possible to let go, it's possible to end suffering. Uh, because, as the Buddha 
says, all things are created by action, by karma. And so if you can create something, you can uncreate it by reversing the process. If suffering is created by (laughs) clinging, then we can uncreate suffering or we can stop suffering, end suffering, by ceasing to cling. This is really the premise of the Buddha's teaching. So the third noble truth correlates to the second step. Both of them are about the potential for change. Uh, Step three is where I will spend more time talking about what that, how we can view that power. Although some of that might slip in tonight. But this, uh, this uh, vision of freedom, of the possibility of freedom, is so essential to the process that the, both the Buddha and the founders of Alcoholics Anonymous, who wrote the steps, saw that we needed to, to uh, include this as a, a specific uh, element of this process. It wasn't enough to just say, you're powerless over alcohol, make the decision to turn your will and your life over. Or to say, the cause of suffering is clinging. The way to end suffering is to practice the Eightfold Path. Both of them make this point that we have to really see the possibility of change. When one is caught up in addiction or simply in life, it is very easy to get the feeling that change is not possible. We get into a rut. I mean, addiction itself is kind of the essence of not changing, of just doing the same thing over and over. And eventually, as we feel compelled to take this action over and over, we start to believe that we have to do it over and over and that we can't stop. So even though we might see that our suffering is caused by our addiction, we might not see that there is a way out. And this is kind of being caught between step one and step two. Yeah, I see I'm an alcoholic, but what can I do about it? I can't. And this is particularly troubling for people who have relapsed repeatedly. And I encounter a lot of people like this in treatment centers uh, who have been through several different treatment centers. It starts to be very difficult to believe in the possibility of change. Um, but it's not restricted to people who have had relapse. Um, I mean, I I have to say that I think most of us, at some point, before we got into recovery, believed that we were not going to be able to change. I guess I started talking about this certain elements of this process uh, very specifically in the last couple of years, uh, talking about um, the uh, implicit delusion in that despair which believes you can't change because 
that what's implied when we believe we can't change is that the law of karma does not apply. And anytime you think that the law of karma does not apply, then you are, by definition in Buddhism, in delusion. That is to say, you aren't seeing reality, you aren't seeing the truth of the way things are, which is that the law of karma applies to everything. That doesn't mean you're going to succeed at overcoming your addiction. It just means that that potential is there. It's undeniable. Clearly, in order for us to even make the effort to be sober or to come into recovery from any kind of addiction, we have to believe that it's possible. Again, this is why we need this step. If we don't believe that it's possible, then we won't even take the actions which make it possible. This is called self-fulfilling prophecy. I can't change, so therefore I don't change. Um, Very difficult, though, when we've lived decades in a certain kind of behavior and haven't been able to find a way out of it. Which is another reason why I think the steps encourage us to in some sense, think of this, that there's something other than us that's going to get us sober. Because we've seen that our own, what we perceive as our own power has not worked. Um, I would say that we just haven't accessed the right power. But um, In in Buddhism, um, faith is seen as one of the five spiritual powers, along with wisdom, energy, uh, mindfulness, and boy, wow. Okay, Sean should come in and tell me. They balance each other. Wisdom and faith balance each other. Energy and concentration. Ah, that's the other one, sorry. <laughs> that's why it's good to have lists. Um, and we think of, I think most people come to Buddhism thinking of it as a non-faith-based religion. Uh, you're, you're too late. Did you say effort? I did. I said, I call, I said energy, you know, because I think uh, concentration and energy balance each other so yeah. we'll, t- we'll, t- we'll talk <laughs> um, a, lo- a lot of people who have been uh, either sense that they've been harmed or feel alienated by religions that kind of uh, demand a kind of blind faith you may have heard of some of these religions um, or that suggest sort of uh, Difficult to swallow premises. Um, you'll come to Buddhism saying, oh, well, you know, there's no beliefs in Buddhism. And um, yes and no. Right? Uh, the, certainly the, the beauty of Buddhism is that uh, there isn't a requirement that you accept some magical ideas, although if you read the texts, there's a lot of crazy 
magic going on, but but that's not what it's about. I mean, you know, if you read the birth of the Buddha, it's just as crazy as virgin birth. I mean, the Buddha was, you know, born out of his mother, his mother's side, and then he took seven steps and you know, declared that he was, you know, the world ruler or some not crazy stuff. Right? <laughs> And everything, you know, there were the earthquakes and everything shook. You know. Are you sure that's what happened? <laughs> I wasn't there, but I'm just a little skeptical. But what the faith that we need in Buddhism is much like the faith that we need in the 12 steps, which is the faith to try it, the faith to show up, the faith to take the actions that will bring about the change. And little by little, that faith grows because you take the first step or you go to the first meeting or you come to the meditation group and, oh, that was kind of good. And then you go to the next one and it kind of starts to build. Um, the, the, the teaching that uh, gives Buddhism kind of this reputation of not being faith-based is... Uh, called the Kalama Sutta, and there was um, a community, a tribe that called the Kalamas uh, in northern India at the time, and they lived at kind of a crossroads where many of the spiritual teachers of the day passed through, and there were many at that time. This is a particular era uh, when there were many uh, different teachers teaching their own dharmas, their own truth. And the Kal- when the Buddha came to town. The columnist came out and said, another one. And he said, said to the Buddha, you know, each teacher who comes through here says, my teaching is the best, forget everybody else, just follow me, it's the, it's the number one way. You know, who are we supposed to believe? And the Buddha said, well, don't believe me. <laughs> and he said, don't, don't believe something because it's written down or because your uh, elders tell you it's true or it's the tradition. Uh, But he goes on further. He said, don't believe something just because it's logical, which is quite a challenge, even in our culture today. Don't believe it because it fits with your views or that it feels right. Essentially, don't believe it based on any kind of... uh, information you can get. Believe it only if you try it and then you see that the results of it are beneficial. Um, and it, it puts in this other caveat, which is, and check with wise people. <laughs> which, strictly speaking, when the Buddhist talks about a wise person, he's talking about himself. So it kind of cycles back. But there's always... You know, Something, but uh, but the point being that that he's not demanding any kind of adherence to orthodoxy, as it's uh, one of my teachers calls it orthopraxy. Mm-hmm. So it's not following a dogma; it's following a practice, uh, and it's the practice that's at the heart of Buddhism, and it's so important. And we and this is where 
our, our faith is really called upon. I mean, when you're sitting and you get that feeling of claustrophobia, or the mind starts to spin out, or the back starts to hurt, yeah, it's very easy to think, why am I doing this? You know, try going on, you know, there's people up the hill who have been practicing now for five weeks. Uh, there's a two-month retreat going on. A lot of them just go for one month, but a certain percentage of them, there's probably 80 or 100 people up there practicing. And, you know, at some point in those two months, you always ask yourself, what? why did I come here? What am I doing? I'm sitting here, and then in between I'm walking really slowly. And I haven't had dessert in like a month. I mean, no. I hope my DVR isn't like overly full of all my shows. I'm missing a lot of good shows. Um, You know, it's natural that you're going to have those moments. But by and large, this practice uh, answers those questions in and of itself. It isn't like, oh, let me go and look this up in the book and see what it says. You know, the... um, the practice is where we learn. And that's the elegance of it. It's not that you come... You know, notice the way this class is structured. You don't come in and I give you a lecture and then you meditate. You meditate first. Because your experience, your practice is the most important part. And that's what actually opens your mind, opens your heart, enough to be able to hear the teachings, to appreciate the teachings. No matter how much you read about Buddhism, you don't really know anything until you've sat down and done this. And then, when you go back and read the books, you go, oh, that's what that meant. Yeah, I experienced that. I had that. You know, when when I first learned this practice and and they called insight meditation. And Joseph Goldstein's first book is called The Experience of Insight. And I loved this book, and I was very inspired by it. Um, but I kept thinking that while I was meditating, some information was going to, uh, some thought was going to come. This insight was going to come, and I was going to go, right. Because they would always talk about these insights. And I'd be like, when's that going to happen for me? You know, I'm waiting. And Eventually, it was not while I was practicing that I realized, it was after I'd practiced and then looked again at certain books. I would pick something up and be reading, oh, well, yeah, I had that experience. And it wasn't, they didn't come with signs on them. It was only on reflecting back that I realized. And that's, again, the, the, the kind of purity of this practice is that it isn't information that you get in your head. It's stuff that you get that you just you know it, and someone just points out to you that you already know it. Uh, I'm not sure if I'm talking about step two anymore. But <laughs> I might be. Um, I've talked when I talk about delusion. Just to cycle back here a little bit, I'm talking about. Insanity, in case you were wondering. So that's the insanity, you know, Buddhist insanity, 
is not following the Dharma, not seeing what is true. So uh, Buddhist insanity is thinking that if I keep getting high, you know, my life, I'll be happy. Let's just put it that way. If I just can get loaded, I'll be happy. That's delusion, right? Uh, Insanity, uh, because that's uh, thinking that desire brings satisfaction. It's a fundamental delusion. Acting on desire will bring satisfaction. Another delusion is that I can hold on to things. And again, around addiction, I can hold on to this experience. If I just do the right drugs and combination of substances or actions, if I can get control this person, you know, if I can just get everything lined up right, then I'll be okay. Missing the fact that everything is constantly in flux. It's called impermanence. One of the fundamental insights in Buddhism. So thinking that you can hold on to things is delusion. Thinking that things can't change. Thinking that you can, as I describe in One Breath at a Time, thinking that I could be stoned just that same way that first time I heard Jimi Hendrix, you know, just for the rest of my life, and trying to keep recreating that experience, which I think is a lot of what addiction comes out of, is trying to recreate some moment And, of course, we can't recreate anything because every moment is its own moment. So that's delusion. Thinking that we can be happy all the time, that we should always feel good. Thinking that there's something wrong with us when we feel bad, if we're sad or we're angry or we're scared. Oh, what's wrong with me? You're experiencing the truth that's called the first noble truth, the truth of suffering. It's natural. It's okay. You don't have to fix it. Thinking that you should be able to stay happy all the time, delusion, insanity. That's another aspect of, of the addict personality. And it's also, I, I think that it just reflects uh, one way of characterizing it is to say that it's, it's immaturity. You know, I, I think that the addict personality is immature, and largely because we become addicts when we are still immature. And then, because we're addicts, we don't have the opportunity to mature. <laughs> There's nothing happening. We're not growing and so we kind of stay stuck at what, I mean, this is one of the truisms or cliches of the recovery world, that we stay stuck emotionally at the age when we started to use. And I, I don't think that's exactly true. I don't, I don't think there's no progress, but that it certainly retards our progress. Um, so, we, so we stay in this kind of adolescent view that things are supposed to be easy. That's one thing adolescents believe. Mm-hmm. Things shouldn't be hard. And you should be happy. If, there's, if you're not happy, something's wrong. If I'm not having fun, right? I, mean, I have a 12-year-old, so I'm, I can see this playing out in my life on a daily basis. Uh, I just hope it doesn't, you know, go, go bad like it did for me. <laughs> <laughs> 
<coughs> talk about powerless. The, the third, there's the, what's called the three characteristics in Buddhism, which are these three great insights, in, insight into impermanence, insight into suffering. The third one is the insight into <coughs> not-self, or that there isn't some core identity that's, um, that's attached to us, that we are, that, that uh, defines us. This is uh, you know, one of the most misunderstood teachings, and it's one that we'll probably wind up coming around to more than once in these weeks. Um, but it's, uh, it's another way that we become deluded and that we ca- then cause ourselves suffering. Uh, when we think that who we are is a particular role that we play or some uh, identity that we have. Like, who, you know, who I am is a parent. And then your, your child outgrows the need for you to be a parent. You're still their parent, but you don't have that role anymore. Who, what happens then? Uh, it, when you think of yourself as... Um, a good person, and then you do something bad. There's this conflict. Um, when you think of yourself as being your job, and then you get laid off. When you think of yourself as your role in, you know, as a husband or wife, and then you get divorced. Um, you know, th- these are hugely disruptive to our psyche when we're when we see our, our whole identity as being a particular person, that's who I am. We're not any of those. We have many different roles that change over a lifetime. And um, we cause ourselves suffering and a lot of confusion when we can't be easeful about them. If I go home and start acting like the Dharma teacher, it doesn't go over. <laughs> um, but sometimes it's hard. You know, it's hard to to change roles. And certainly, the identity of the addict, uh, you know, is is um, a very powerful one. And and one of the struggles in recovery, certainly in early recovery, is to get comfortable with not being that person anymore. I mean, for a lot of people, it's kind of cool, right? I mean, it's kind of, kind of a cliche among jazz musicians that they have to be heroin addicts to play saxophone well, you know. And, and wow, you know, really artists who give up, uh, you know, writers and who give up drugs or alcohol, that they, they thought that that was somehow part of their art form, you know, uh, really, uh, really can be challenging. Uh, but, but more than that is just the way that um, as addicts we just don't have any clarity about, about identity. Uh, and so we, we uh, the clinging is just uh, kind of... Um, primal in some way. So there isn't any like 
uh, wisdom around it. It's just just a, a desperate kind of grasping at something. So these are some of the forms of insanity that uh, getting a higher power will help you to uh, resolve. And the fact that you are here doing this reflects a certain step two happening. You came here because of some belief that this would help you in some way. I'm sure there's different reasons that people are here, but essentially you wouldn't be coming in here sitting in, you know, sitting still with your eyes closed for half an hour and then listening to some guy ramble on and on if you didn't think that it was going to have help you to change in some way. Now, whether you see me as a power greater than you, which I hope you don't, uh, some people get that kind of delusion that a teacher is like this other, you know, other power, uh, it's like this special, unique person. Uh, but, uh, but to just see that the power greater than you is, is really the process. It's the power of karma. It's the power of the law of karma. That if you engage in a process, you can change. It will not be uh, based on your own preferences or your own habits. It will be based on a, a form and uh, some ideas that require you to let go of those habits, those reactive ways of being, those tendencies, those preferences. And that's the great challenge of it, of changing, because it's, it doesn't feel natural, feels wrong to do stuff that isn't what you normally do. And so it maybe is helpful to think that it's some power outside you that's going to take care of you. Uh, and certainly, I think that in the beginning, the process is so, uh, feels so alien that it must be something outside me that's guiding me or that's running this because it doesn't feel like me, because the, the me that I'm used to doesn't behave like this. Well, um, this is plenty of words for the evening. I want to um, talk about a couple things uh, before we go and then have a closing uh, practice. This little handout, this week's handout. um, I was talking to... um, uh, Bill Alexander, William Alexander, who wrote the book Ordinary Recovery that they have back there. Uh, we were talking yesterday. Uh, he's in Minnesota, unfortunately for him. Um, and he was saying that uh, one, uh, one suggestion he's heard about uh, doing the steps is that you add what he calls the, like step step. 1A and step 2A, in addition to each step, which he says is, you know, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Step 2A, meditate on this. <laughs> which I really like. It's not just 
read this word and do that. It's just meditate on this. And, and I think that is one of the ways to approach the steps. And that's kind of what I'm, what these suggestions are, are things for you to meditate on, what the different elements of the steps are. So to, to look at what you might do this week is after your morning meditation or your evening meditation, read one of these and meditate on it. Some of them are questions. Some of them are my reflections that you can just think about. Um, And this is about, as I said, step three. So this is kind of getting you to think about the issues that we'll talk about next weekend or next Thursday. Um, I've also... uh, suggested that with your meditation practice that you use the noting practice. So I hope you remember what that is since I'm not um, explaining what it is here. And then I'm also suggesting that you work a a bit with your body. Uh, You know, I mentioned tonight about um, trying to sit still. It's, It's Clearly it's one of the most difficult aspects of meditation is to just sit still. So I would say, rather than starting by saying, I'm not going to move, start by committing to be aware when you are about to move, and then move slowly and mindfully if you are going to move, and then come back to stillness when you're done moving, so that it's a conscious process. It's not just reactive fidgeting or scratching or, you know, moving around. Uh, Stillness of the body supports the arising of stillness of the mind. That is one of the formulas of practice. That's why we encourage you to sit still, not because we're taskmasters, but because being still, every time you move, it agitates the mind and you have to start again. If you watch your mind, you will see that process. So watch that when you move, or when you move unconsciously. And then, oh, wait, notice how it's, of course, it's difficult. But one of the things that that does is that then it brings you up against your reactivity, your tendency to want to fix stuff. The more you face that and can breathe into that, relax and release, the stronger your ability to be unreactive becomes. The more you can sit through, and I'm not talking about like, I'm going to tough it out. I'm talking about, there it is. Oh, look at that. Feel that energy. Just let it. And I talked about surfing the urge last week. Did I talk about that a little bit? No. It's kind of like feeling the energy of a wave coming up underneath you and and just mentally and kind of physically having a sense of just being on this power, this energy that's wanting you to move or that's wanting you to scream or that's wanting you to get up and make a phone call or get up and have a drink and just feel that energy and feel it as a flow because waves come and go. And you'll feel that there's kind of a, a uh, arc that happens with these energies and with restlessness. It comes, but if you can stay with it without fighting it, but with just kind of 
here it is, acceptance, but not reacting, then you'll see that it'll, it'll change. Um, I've also put um, a couple tips for meditation, How, creating a space, creating a schedule. I've also put the link, the, no, it's not exactly a link, you can't click on this, you can try. Uh, the Buddhist Recovery Network website and the dates for our coming conference as well as the mission statement so you can see some, uh, get some idea what Buddhist Recovery Network is. My website, which also has guided meditations and things and talks on it. Uh, 12-Fold Path, which is a Yahoo group of Buddhists in recovery. Sometimes there's some really good conversations on there. And it's the internet, so sometimes there isn't. Access to Insight is a, a brilliant uh, website of Theravadan Buddhism if you want to study uh, further. So there's a few things for this week. So that pretty much brings us to the end. Um, uh, I was planning to have some interactive exercise tonight, and one of the things I've noticed is that plans don't always come about. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.